Well, we are in the process of putting pieces together around Christmas. Last Sunday, we talked about the preparation of a gift. And we talked about the preparation of uh, the radical gift uh, that God was involved with in the bringing of his son, a bringing of the second person of the Trinity. And we talked last week about how the presentation of a gift shows the purpose of a gift. And uh, in all of this, last Sunday we took a look and saw how the, the radical gift of Christ is a radical gift because of part because of the radical preparation that's been behind the gift. Now, if you remember, we, uh, we talked about three things. We talked about uh, the radical gift uh, prepared from the beginning. Uh, God wasn't caught off guard. Uh, God wasn't trying to figure out a plan he's going along. Uh, God had the whole thing together. God knew from the very beginning the whole redemptive plan. The Alpha and Omega knows the Alpha and Omega. And from the beginning, we also talked about how God from, uh, prepared through the millennia. Uh, just in a reminder, one of the things for me just was a great reminder of this. Listen, God didn't have to tell us anything about his plan until the plan came. I mean, in some ways, we think about it. Why did God have to tell all this stuff over time uh, about uh, the coming of the Christ? Uh, actually, he wasn't required to, but man, I would just want to tell you, I'm so glad he did because it just shows his grace and his love and his care. Also with that, out of all of that, uh, he prepared it, uh, did preparation so that there would be no question. It would be without question. Listen, uh, the baby that we see here in the picture uh, while that is not an actual picture of the birth, uh, they didn't quite look like Americans. Um, I will say this. That is God in the flesh. And, and we can say that sometimes and go, come on. <laughs> come on. Like that's a little over the top. No, I'm dead serious. And part of the reason is we talked about last week because, listen, the odds of it are just beyond question. So what are the odds? What are the odds we talked about last week? You remember the Messianic prophecies? In fact, do you remember how many Messianic prophecies there were? Man, I've just been shocked. Both services have like so remembered that number. That's a huge, awesome number. Just real quick, uh, what are the odds of eight of those coming true? Last week we talked. We talked about take the state of Texas, fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. That's a whole lot of silver dollars. In fact, it's 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars. Mark one of those silver dollars, randomly go and pick anyone out blindfolded, and the odds of you picking the marked one out first are the odds that eight, eight of the prophecies are fulfilled. Uh, now, what about 48 of the prophecies as we talked about last week? It's even a bigger number. 10 to the 157th power. In that number, as we talked about, take every electron in the known universe. An electron, by the way, in case you're figuring out how, what's the size, as we talked last week, what's the size of an electron to a proton? Because I know everybody knows the size of a proton. The size of an electron is one thousandth the size of a proton. Take every electron in the known universe, mark one of them, then randomly go out at any random point in time, grab one electron, the first uh, electron that you grab, the opportunity that that is the one that was marked is the odds that a person could fulfill 48 of the Messianic prophecies. And how many were there? Listen, I'm just telling you folks, this was a God event. 
And God did it in the kind of a way. He prepared it in the kind of a way that we would be without question about it. Here's what we're doing. Last Sunday was just kind of, we're kind of looking at the birth. We're kind of standing back and, and, and observing all that's taking place. And we've seen it over the period of time. Today, we're kind of coming in and we're getting a little bit closer. We're kind of kind of look in maybe a different way than you might be thinking about normally with the story. We're just going to look at some individuals here that are a part of this. What we're doing is today we're looking at the presentation. Last week it was the preparation coming in. Now it's kind of the presentation, the entrance of the Christ. In fact, let's talk about three types of presentations of the Godhead. One took place in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. How did God present himself? It's very interesting, really cool. Uh, I know, here's how he presented himself. Create everything. You walk away from creating everything and you go like, "Uh, that's God. And he's powerful. He creates everything. But I love this. In Genesis 3, uh, I think it's verse 8 or 18 in there, uh, it talks about how God was walking among the cool of the day. It's interesting. It didn't have to say that. But I think part of the reason that the text tells us about that in the beginning is because the Bible is helping us, is presenting to us what God is like. And the fact that it presents to us this God that created everything and, I'll just say, walks among everything is the fact that God is not sitting on Neptune with his feet up completely unaware and could give a rip about what goes in his creation. The presentation shows God wants to walk among his creation with his creation giving him glory. That's quite an entrance. Second entrance. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I just want to read a few verses here because it gives us another example of the of the Godhead presenting itself. This is making an entrance, okay? This is at the second coming of Christ. And here in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Uh, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, the cross, and the name by which he is called, I love this, the Word of God. Who's Jesus? John chapter 1, the Word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven, talking about an entrance, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. I'm on horse. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is one cool entrance. Listen, the entrance at creation fits God's purposes. The entrance at the second coming fits the purposes at hand. The majestic, the almighty is coming to conquer and is coming to judge. Two entrances, 
showing the purpose. I want for us today to key in on the entrance of the birth, the presentation of the birth. I would say today, as we look at this, the birth tells us something. It is the entrance of the second person of Trinity and the manner in which the birth takes place and the surrounding setting, the place, the people surrounding it points to a purpose. And we're going to take a look at that here. Now, if I were in charge of sending the second person of the Trinity to earth, (laughs) please laugh because that is a joke. But let's just go with the joke. But if I were to do that, I would do it like this. More like Revelation 19. I would do it more where it's like, I mean, this is the second person of the Trinity. Colossians chapter 1, Genesis, this is really the one that created all things. This is the one who's come to earth. How would I do it? Here's how I'd do it. I would, at the time of the birth, why would I even do the birth? I'd be like, come as a man. Come as like a man. But, okay, birth, we'll go with that. I would do it where it would like come from heaven and, and, and in this gorgeous cradle and it would just be spinning and the heavens would be going Ooh, and everyone on earth would be hearing the sound from the heavens and, and there would be all this and it would just come down and it, it would come, okay, if Israel's a place, okay, if Jerusalem, okay, okay, it's going to come down. I'm going to land it like in this palace with like A-lister people all around. And I'm just going to put it there so that's how I would bring in the Son of God. God did nothing like that. Why? Because of the purpose of the baby. So let's just take a look. So what we're doing last week, we kind of stood back. We look at the presentation or the preparation. Today we're looking at the presentation. Here's what I want to do. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at four radically unlikely individuals that God uses in his entrance or in his presentation. Uh, This is going to be different than what you're used to. We're not going to be so engaged in all the activities, uh, if you will, that took place. I really want to, but I'm going to restrain myself from doing it because our purpose today is to kind of stand back and just look. And I want to just say this. God uses four radically unlikely individuals why would he do that let's just take a look at the four radically unlikely individual number one is Zechariah. Zechariah, luke chapter one verse five in the days of herod king of judea now let's put some context to this right here uh it's approximately five bc 5 B.C., 4 B.C. Yeah, but I thought Jesus was born on 0 A.D. No, no, oh, see, the timing thing. No, that's not exactly. It was about 5 B.C., okay? It's about 5 B.C. Herod is king of Judea, and Herod is a tyrant. Just to give you an idea, Herod had nine wives. One of his wives and two of his brothers, he killed. He killed because he suspected them of treason. Turn against me? <laughs> Uh, that was Herod. This was actually a very dark time for Israel. Uh, for them, in many ways, it was dark because God had been silent for 400 years. From the ending, closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament here, God has been silent for 400 years. It was almost as though people could look at the temple in Jerusalem and say, has God left the house? 
What's been going on here? Many, in fact, had given up the belief that they would have an actual eternity with God. Many of the Israelites at the day actually changed their theology because God had been silent for so long and developed a theology saying this, uh, eternity is not lived with God. Eternity is actually lived out through our offspring. (laughs) So that, I just want to let you know, it was theologically, structurally, time-wise, a very dark time in Israel's history. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, Zechariah was a priest. Now, we've kind of got to flush some of the perspectives that we have when we hear that word today. A priest in that day uh, was based upon your lineage. If you came from the lineage of Aaron. In Chronicles, it talks about how there were 24 divisions of priests from the line of Aaron. In that day, there was estimated to be about 18,000 priests at that time out of the lineage of Aaron. Each of the divisions, there's 24 divisions. So how they did it was each of the divisions would serve one week in the temple every six months. So it was two times a year, that uh, two weeks in a year that each of the divisions would serve. Zechariah was one of these. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Uh, radically unlikely individual number two, Elizabeth, his wife. Uh, what do we know about her? Not much. Daughter of Aaron. In other words, she's in the lineage of Aaron, uh, uh, the priestly lineage. Well, you may be saying, Doug, you're calling these two unlikely, and yet in it, they actually seem likely. I mean, he's the priest. He's really, by the way, in the priest thing, uh, it was a lay priest. With the 18,000, the vast majority of them were not full-time. The vast majority of them were working out in their homes spread around Israel. They were shepherds, they were carpenters, they were blacksmiths. And then for their time, they would come in and serve. And so it's kind of like, well, what's so unlikely about them? Let's keep reading. Verse 6, and they were both righteous before God. How cool is that to have been had that said about you? They're righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, Doug, you're calling them radically unlikely to be used by God. And everything I'm seeing here says these two are completely ones who would be used by God in the lineage of Aaron, and they're godly individuals. What's the problem? Let's keep reading. Verse 7. What's the first word? But. Contrast. Turn of focus. Turn of feel. But. Although everything was looking great there, but they had no child. Hey, listen. Parents with children, you and I oftentimes forget this. Some of you know what it's like to want a child and and, in God's sovereignty, not able to have a child. You understand this. I just want to bring some things into this. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Uh, They were an elderly individuals. They were childless individuals. Uh, Barrenness meant life hardship. Functionally and emotionally. Functionally, it meant life hardship in the day because it was just 
the two of you. And life was a lot harder back then in just preparing meals, getting things around, getting things together. It, it took a community to have life done. And when it was just you and your honey and that's it, and especially as you get older and the legs get creakier and you can't quite do as many things you had before, you don't have the children to help you in the process. And functionally, life gets hard. Also, uh, uh, remember I made mention that many thought in the day that your eternity was lived on your offspring? Now, these, this was a godly couple, so big deal to them. No, big deal because what of other people are thinking. Added to that, the own internal hurt. Wanting to go through that process. Wanting to have the experience of having a child and raising a child. There's something very special in that, isn't there? And, and here is this dear couple following God. Zechariah, elderly, childless, one of 18,000 lay priests. Really, frankly, nothing that special about him. Here's Elizabeth, elderly, childless, unblessed, if you will. Disappointed. She knows the misfortune. She knows even the social embarrassment amongst the women that others would put on her. She gets the hurt. Hey, have you ever felt like that? I don't know, maybe you will feel like that. Here's this couple who's been living for the Lord for years and years and years. And we're going to find out in a little bit that this was a couple that was praying to God for years and years and years. God, would you bless us with the child? And God gives you a big zero. And you're like, is this really even worth it? You know what I'm talking about. But imagine if that's your story over decades of time. Uh, that's Zachariah and Elizabeth. There is so much hurt in this couple. Bless their heart. Well, let's bring on the stage radically unlikely individual number three. Joseph. Joseph. Well, let's jump over to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. What do we know about Joseph? <laughs> it's kind of interesting because we don't know much at all. We don't even know little about Joseph before the birth. Truth of the matter is we don't know much about Joseph after the birth. In fact, it's, it's wondered, did Joseph die somewhere between his birth and the cross? Uh, there's, we don't know because he's kind of out of the picture in so many. Who is Joseph? A couple things. He's a descendant of David. He's likely from Nazareth. He's a carpenter and he's poor. And he's engaged. I'll just term it this way. He's typical. He's just a normal country boy. A poor country boy. That's unlikely individual number three. Uh, by the way, do you remember how I would be bringing the son? Had nothing to do with these kind of people. Uh, let's go to number four. Number four would be, who would you guess? Mary. Uh, unlikely individual, number four, uh, verse 27. Uh, and to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Here's Mary. What do we know about her? She's a descendant of David as well, a Jewess of the tribe of Judah. Now, you and I go, descendant of David. Woo! Man, they're high on the scale. Not really. Not really. Uh, just in this, let me kind of tell you a little bit about it. Because she was from Nazareth, most likely, she was poor. 
Now, one, she was an engaged woman, we saw. Engagement in that day was a legal pledge. It was, a, it was equivalent to marriage, but you weren't married. Actually, the engaged couple called each other husband and wife, but they did not live together, and there was no sexual intimacy together. And in fact, if there was sexual intimacy together during that period of time, it was viewed as infidelity, it was viewed as adultery in that period of time. So they didn't live together. It states in the text we see that Mary is a virgin. Joseph and Mary are non-A-listers for sure. I say that because of where they're from, Nazareth. Now understand, Galilee is a region, Galilee is the region, Nazareth is a city. Uh, the people of Judah, uh, Israelites from Judah, uh, kind of had a disdain for the Galileans. They were too close to those Gentile dogs. Literally how it was viewed. So the people up there, you know, they're not real high on the list. Add to that the fact, historically, there's some cities that are named of things and attitudes, kind of like, if you will, from the newspapers of the day. And Nazareth was one of those cities that people really did not like you. You were not kosher. You were not up. You were really the low life on the entire Israelite totem pole. They're country folk, poor folk. I like country folk. I don't know about you. I'll just add in this. You know, I've talked to people over the years, and even people within Harvest and other churches, and uh, Christians, non-Christians, business, non-business, and I've never had the person when they ask, where do you live, Indianapolis, go, that is such a cool place. Indianapolis, man, like, what do you do there? kind of a thing you know if you're california oh so cool on the coast if you're colorado oh you know if you're oh indiana true i'm fine with vanilla i i i like country folk i like the heritage out of this area there's some really wonderful things here I like being here, and yet part of it is on it, you know, on the whole class side of things. Um, we're not on the high A-lister reality of pedigree here out of Indiana. Well, I'm just telling you, for Joseph and Mary, they were way lower. They were way lower. They were truly dirt poor, no name, plodding along, nothing special country folk. I just, again, I want to bring into this from this standpoint, when you look, you know, at, at this dear couple, do you ever kind of feel like them? Well, I'm just one in a million, living in cornfield soybeans. What's the big deal about my life? Yeah. Plodding along. poor why would god use poor people like this the presentation tells about the purpose let's just keep going let's just do this for a little bit let's just kind of fill in how god uses some of these folks for good okay let's just take uh, 10 minutes here and kind of look at how god uses them and then we'll draw some conclusions from them well let's do this 
Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's pick up a verse 8. And let's take a look at what God does with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Here we go. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, oh, how many times a year would he be in this process? Okay, twice a year for two weeks, a week each time. Uh, let's keep reading. His division is on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord. Chosen by lot. <laughs> okay, um, here's how they would do it. They would have their division, one of the 24 division there. And there's a lot of these guys because if you go 18,000 divided by 24, let's say there's 750 of these guys all together in a division. So they get the division together, and there's 750, uh, and, and, and they would have one priest, uh, the text then says, uh, to burn the incense. They would do the burn the incense after the sacrifice in the morning and after the sacrifice in the evening. They would have one priest uh, of the lay priests selected to go in in the morning and then one in the evening. Now, it was done by these casting these lots, so all 750 of you are around. So 750, I should have done the math earlier. I didn't think about it, but eh, 750. Let's just say the odds of you going in and doing this are once or twice in your lifetime. Okay? It's, this is a big, important part of it. Once or twice in your lifetime, would you have the opportunity as one in the lineage of Aaron to be able to do the incense offering in this? So what they would do is they'd gather around, they'd cast lots. It literally was they'd throw dice. They'd throw dice. The reason they did that is they viewed that as that would be a way that would not be favoritism. So you wouldn't pick your best buddy. Then when you went in, you stepped out of the, if you will, the circle of it. So then it just kept going, 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 going. Now, this all of a sudden, we hear, see here that Zechariah is an elderly guy, which means he hasn't most likely done this yet. He's in the circle. They're throwing dice. I'll just say this. God's in the dice. God is Now, don't take that to Las Vegas. <laughs> but I will say this. God was in the dice here. And, and so they cast the dice, and Zechariah is up. His once-in-a-lifetime thing. How cool. This is his chance, so he does the burn incense. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Uh, again, I just don't have the time to go into it, but at the temple there, you've got, you know, the priests are there and, and the one who goes in and outside, what's happening? All these people are, they're praying. Uh, uh, there's not two people. There's not three people. There's not five people. There's a multitude. How big's a multitude? More. <laughs> I don't know, but we got the idea. It's a lot of people out there praying. I just love this scene. So let's keep reading with the scene in place. Uh, verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's inside all by himself. Oh, how cool would that be? And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I would be too. Uh, the fear fell upon him. Same for me. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. How cool is that? Look at this. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I got to take just a short rabbit trail. Do you wonder if God ever hears your prayer? Do you ever wonder if it's like, am I just wasting time? Look at this. You can come right back here. Luke chapter 1. God hears. In fact, look at this. Uh, uh, um, lost my place for your prayer has been heard and your wife elizabeth will bear you a son what has he been praying about a son god would you give me a child would you give me a child god could you bless us with a child 
God, could you bless us with a child? And it's as though God is just doing nothing. And listen, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Not only does God hear prayers, but in this situation, God does a really cool prayer answer work. And you will have joy. And Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Boy, that saves a whole lot of sweat when you're told what the name is, isn't it? And someone will, John, John who? John the baptizer. That's who we're talking about here. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Spirit. It's talking about the Nazarene vow. Even from his mother's womb, he'll be filled with the Spirit. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Are you kidding? That's my boy? Uh, it keeps going. To turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared? Yeah, that's my boy. I mean, that's good news in it. Yet look, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? <laughs> that would have been so probably me. Uh, we could sit here and smack talk him, if you will, a little bit for what a fool. Duh, no. He's elderly. And from everything I know about how the process works, when you get older, that generally doesn't happen. But here is the angel. Listen, you're thinking this way, not this way. So what happens? Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, Zach, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. Uh, this is why it's so important to remember God. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. You know, sometimes you look at this and you just go, come on, God. The guy's been without a child for all this time, can he? It's interesting. Uh, which will be fulfilled in their time. I love that. It will be fulfilled. doesn't matter what you think. doesn't matter even what you say you believe. It's going to be fulfilled if God says it. Oh, by the way, do you know the Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to return? The Bible does. Guess what? It's going to happen. Verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he was seeing a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went out to his home. Can you imagine the sight? He walks out of the thing, and he's like, what was going on in there? Can you imagine trying to illustrate what just was told to you? I don't know. But there's a humor to it, but yet just a very amazing. God used this guy. Why? And look, by the way, with Elizabeth, verse 24, and after these days his wife, Elizabeth, what? Conceived what God says God will do. And for five months she kept herself hidden. Oh, there's so many things to talk about in this. We just can't today. Just that, ladies, doesn't that just tell you a lot? For five months, she kept herself hidden. Why? Ugh, I so want to go there. 
so many things. Living by faith is not an easy thing. Verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, look at this, to take away my reproach among people. Okay, right in that statement, we see a woman who's been hurt and has been hurting for years. And God uses the means. Well, let's just jump up here, take a look at uh, Mary. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, Mary, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Oh, there's just grace all over that. I mean, she was shocked by this. Uh, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Second time, God's so good. Uh, Mary for you have found favor with God. That's not a you have earned favor with God. God has graced favor upon you. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. <laughs> and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of the Father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I can see Zechariah going, yeah, my boy is going to be like a rock star. You know, I, okay, in a right kind of a way. In a fatherly kind of a way. I, I want to just point out this out. Here's Mary, engaged. She is now told that she's going to bear a child. Please understand, while for Zechariah, there was aspects of this that were great news, in many ways for Mary... This all of a sudden was now going to bring a life of mockery on her. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? We kind of, well, why doesn't, why doesn't the angel silence her, mute her? Well, we learn later upon it that basically Mary is like, I'm a willing servant. That's fine. She's just wondering, how can this be as well? I'm not questioning faith. I'm here. Why would God use a no-name like Mary? Joseph. You can on your own here go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 tells a little bit more about Joseph. But in the process, Joseph finds out that, uh, or an angel shows up and says that his wife is, or his engaged, quote, wife is pregnant. What's he going to do now? And I just got to tell you on the horizontal level, all of a sudden you're like, hey, I haven't been involved in physical sexual intimacy with this woman and she's pregnant. Come on. I'm out of this one. That's why in the text it talks about he sought to dismiss her. He sought to divorce her quietly. I'm just going to say there's character within this guy. He could have done it loudly. He could have done it in a kind of a way, and he was right to do it by Old Testament standards if that was the case to do that. He could have totally embarrassed her and saved his face. Uh, but the angel comes and communicates that, hey, Joseph, I, I've, got a, I've got a vertical plan that you're a part of. There's, I just want to say there's so many things out of this that we could just kind of uh, go with and talk about. I just want for us to look at this and go. <laughs> God's whole entrance is so different than what I would have imagined. 
four unlikely individuals. Oh, oh, by the way, plus in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. John was born, then she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Uh, last point in your notes, all of this is done in a radically unlikely place and setting. This is such an unlikely place in a setting. <laughs> Here you've got Zechariah and Elizabeth. God pulls them out of nothingness to use them in bearing a child, John. God then in his sovereign selection uh, grabs a hold of Joseph and Mary out of nothingness, an engaged couple. You would think, why not get a married couple that can't have kids? God does everything so radically different that makes any kind of sense to you and I. Why? And then he births himself, if you will. He births in a barn, in a cave. There's debate about what it is, but whatever. We know this. It's not the Hyatt. It's not in a palace. It was in a cave. It was in a barn. It was under the house, potentially, kind of barn where they kept the animals. Why would the second person of the Trinity be born that way? I just want to make sure here that you don't walk away today with this lesson being taught. Don't walk away with this lesson. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Mary show that if I continue to be faithful, God will do a big thing for me. Listen, that is such a horizontal, man-centered thing. I will say this. The scriptures do say, continue to be faithful. And these are four who continue to be faithful. And James chapter 1, other passages say that God blesses faithfulness. But God defines what that is. So do be faithful. I do want for you and I to be walking away from this, looking and go, God picked these four out. Why? To highlight the baby and to highlight the purpose of the baby. What am I talking about? Four things here. I just want to bring in at the end. I'll just say this. If I'm bringing last week into this week, plus next week we're going to be adding in, we'll even accentuate some of these. But the birth is about a God event. The birth is about a God event. Please understand, this is not an event that happened. And then religious people kind of said, wow, that was a freaky event. Let's use that. No, no, no. The preparation, and even at the time of how everything happened, God was all over this thing. This was a God event. Hey, listen, this Christmas, when you're opening presents, when you're celebrating the reality of Christmas, listen, this is a God event that we get to celebrate. Do celebrate. Secondly, the birth is about a God born event this is about a god born event this isn't just a human child that kind of turned into a well let's just say like the muslims would say or like uh uh jehovah's witnesses would say he's just uh a really special prophet no no we see today in the text how can a virgin give birth uh, this was a God-born event. Now, by the way, why would God go through all the little baby stuff? Like I said in the beginning, why not come like a 30-year-old hmm, stud-conquering kind of a thing? You see, because 
the presentation points to the purpose. He came as a baby. He came as a baby born. But it was God being born. Uh, Third, the birth is about a God to the cross event. This is kind of what I want to key in out of this. I hope you walk away with this birth, this birth, the lowliness of it, the humbleness of it, the radicalness of it, the Mary and Joseph, no name, nobody, nothing kind of a whole family thing. The lowliness of it points everything to the reality of the cross. Born in a cave. Fitz dying on a cross. It's not a Genesis 1, 2, or 3 reality. It's not a Revelation 19 purpose at the time. The purpose of this baby is the payment on the cross. And even the manner of which it happens accentuates the person on the cross. Hey, parents, hey, all of us, I want to encourage all of us this Christmas that if you read the Christmas story on Christmas, could you flip a few more pages over? And read about the cross? Because the two are tied. The birth is about God to the cross. Fourth, the bird the birth is about a God with man event. I just want to note this in closing. If God created Adam and Eve or Adam out of the dirt, couldn't God have become in the flesh by the same kind of a way? I just want to make an observation, something for you to ponder. I think it represents the fact that this is about Emmanuel, God with man. Uh, The birth, how more intimate can it get to show that this is about God with man? Friends, how wonderful is that? How hopeful is that? Oh, rejoice in the reality. God is not on Neptune with his feet up looking at us going, Oh my word, you guys drive me crazy. The birth shows that, listen, God came to be among us, as we'll be talking about here in a couple of Sundays, to pay the personal price for us. Wow, what a God. What a very, very, very loving, special, entering. Christmas is a wonderful time. The presentation shows the, the preparation, shows the purpose of the Messiah. The presentation accentuates the purpose of the Messiah. God is good. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace and for your incarnate God with us reality. A baby in a manger. Away in a manger, we sang. 
that statement in a manger contains all of the preparation processes that we talked about last week from the Old Testament. That statement, a baby in a manger, contains all of the reality of all the presentation work that was going on at the time of its birth, that this is a God event, that this is God born, that this is about God going to the cross to pay the payment for our sins. And away in a manger reflects on the fact that you came to be with us. That little baby boy Your hands are all over that. You are all over that. That little baby boy is you. Uh, We worship you. Thank you. In the name of Christ, amen.